0: Welcome, everyone, to episode 15 of Small Talk Deflections. I'm your host, Craig Latta, and I'm welcoming this week our new co host, Philippe Fack. Hello, Philippe. Hello, Craig glad to be here cool why don't you tell us a bit about yourself so i am
1: uh, a freelancer and i'm working with Smalltalk since uh, let's say five years and i'm involved in the faro community and the faro consortium
0: nice what are some of the projects you're working
1: on i have been working on a project which is uh showcased on the faro success stories which was cable expertise it was something to do with a uh, network equipment and dashboards and uh capture of information. And at the moment, I have started a data acquisition project that is busy with ATM uh, transaction logs and so on for uh, feeding it into big data systems.
0: Yeah, cool. Well, thanks so much for uh, joining me here. Yeah, my pleasure. David Buck, the originator of the podcast, uh, just got too busy uh, recently to keep doing it. So with his blessing, I've brought a new co-host along. But we hope to hear again from David from time to time. He's working on some very interesting projects as well.
1: Yeah, funny to note, you get uh, from the back to back. <laughs> Maybe you, you will get back to back, you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I just got back from Prague uh, where we had the ESOG 2016 conference. And that was really fun to see everyone again. I hadn't been in uh, five years uh, since Edinburgh in 2011. I showed up for the Camp Smalltalk on the Sunday before, and then, yeah, it was just a great week of talks and uh, a parallel international workshop on small tech technologies uh, for some of it. In particular, I enjoyed the uh, Show Us Your Project sessions and the Innovation Award presentations. It was really great to pitch one of my projects to everyone else in the room multiple times. It's really a great way to hone your pitch and to meet everyone who's at the conference. And then to see everyone else's project, too.
1: Yeah, I wasn't able to attend. I'm jealous of you now.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> When's the last time you went?
1: I went in Ghent so a couple of years. But I organized the Faro Days 2016 this year. So I met a couple of guys in Belgium.
0: Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. In the coming weeks, we'll have uh, audio from some of the talks. I think the sound recording was decent enough to use in a podcast this year. What would be your... Uh, your
1: key, let's say, highlights you, you got from Isaac? New technologies or new stuff? Things that, that piqued your interest?
0: Well, it was great to see everyone unifying behind the Open Smalltalk VM that Elliot is organizing. So the fact that that's on GitHub now, I think, is a, a good step forward. And the fact that changes that one community makes are integrated in the others uh, pretty soon. So, like when Pharaoh does something, the new speak and squeak people can benefit from it uh, very quickly, and uh, you know the same if Kuius does something interesting, then Faro and Squeak and everyone else get on board with it pretty soon too. So I think VM development has just become a lot more efficient.
1: Yeah, I compile my VMs here. Um, uh, yeah, sometimes fixes in the Linux version on Faro, yeah, weren't working in Squeak uh, because of some difference. Uh, Open VM then solves this. It's, it's very cool.
0: Yeah, yeah. Nice.
1: Okay, we have OpenVM, but what, what else do you mention as a great
0: thing? Well, of course, I can mention my own projects. I could take this opportunity for that. Um, I showed off two things this year. One is a project called Snow Globe that was funded by Elliot Miranda. It's a screen sharing app done with Squeak.js so that you can use your web browser to use the user interface of uh, any other Smalltalk. And at ESUG I showed it working with uh, a native Squeak and a native Pharo. Ah, it works It works with native Pharo. Yeah, yeah, and I'm working on a version for VisualWorks as well. It just communicates over a web socket, so it's just a way of doing something like VNC would do, but in your web browser. And it's also smart about r- remote messaging. Since it's a small talk on either side, you can do interesting things uh, with controlling the remote system as well as using its user interface. And then another project I showed is called Caffeine, and that's an integration of Squeak.js with the Chrome debugging protocol. So now Squeak.js can do anything that the built-in web browser debugger can do, time profiling and network profiling, and have a, a REPL console and a debugger and browse the sources of your web app. And I integrated that with a WebDAV server that I have running in the cloud on Squeak. So now you can mount your web browser as if it were a file system and poke around inside all the assets of all the web pages loaded in that web browser. So you can go into one directory and there will be all your JavaScripts. And you can actually edit them. And when you push changes to the virtual file system you get from WebDAV then those changes are reflected back in the web browser. So now you can use your favorite text editor on uh, the virtual file system and edit the HTML of a web page or debug the web page, do all sorts of cool stuff like that. I need to try that. One great thing, you know, this year, the front end on everything I did is Squeak.js. So when I want to release things, I just tell people a URL and they just go to it. And it's very simple. Uh, It's much less effort to install things than uh, with native apps. Yeah,
1: definitely. Do you have a web address to have a look at that?
0: Yeah, that will be at my company's website, blackpagedigital.com. Snowglobe is at blackpagedigital slash snowglobe. And caffeine is at blackpagedigital.com slash caffeine. I'm working on a third project called Tether, which is an adaptation of all my previous distributed computation work to JS, so remote messaging and remote debugging, all that sort of thing. And that will be available at blackpagedigital.com slash tether. And that's a good segue into our topic for this week, which is distributed computation. So
1: on this distributed computing, there are a lot of approaches and features. So what would be for you the, the key features that have to be considered in distributed computing?
0: When people say distributed computing, they often mean different things. You know, there's the whole universe represented as one unified computation space just by multiple physical machines. And then there's the Beowulf style of distributed computation where you have many, many totally independent computation units and they just happen to be working together on some problem. But they're not trying to create the illusion of one big transparent object memory. That's probably the biggest differentiator is how do you want the computation space to appear to the programmer and to the user.
1: Yeah, and as we scale the number of machines, there is always this issue of what happens when machines die. So I'd say a, a big object memory with a lot of machines. Yeah, but what if a machine die? What happens to this object memory?
0: Yeah, do you have that assumption built in that machines might disappear or not? Or are you sort of assuming they're all going to stay up?
1: Yeah. But because with the mean time between failures of a machine being maybe well a year even two, as soon as you have 365 machines, the chances are going up to have an issue every few days. Right?
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And if you're doing something like SETI, where you're depending on the spare cycles of many, many people's machines, and these are just normal people with normal schedules who may turn their machines off, you know, not because the machine failed, but just because they, they turn it off every day. Uh, you have all sorts of issues like that that you might choose to work around.: yeah.
1: If we have multicore uh, systems and uh, and multiprocessors and so on, always a small talk uh, and small talk variants uh, dealing with these things. I mean uh, because we have one object memory, we have a single thread most of the time. there are not many multicore VMs. What is your experience there? for me with with Faro and so on, well I run a couple of images on on one box but there is no multi-threading support on the, the image uh, itself.
0: Yeah, I mean, the fanciest I have gotten so far was using Igor Stasensko's Hydra project, but that was just a way of getting one virtual machine to run multiple images. Um, it didn't really take advantage of uh, multiple cores uh, in the processor. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, my, my experience has always been more with the Beowulf style, uh, where you can think of, each object memory running on a different physical processor, maybe even separated by a network. Yeah, personally, I don't have any experience with multi-core parallelism yet.
1: Yeah, because when we, for example, we see now the the rise of uh, GPU, which is uh, having gigabytes of RAM on them, uh, I don't know many thousands of uh, processing units. So, well, I don't know if any small talk uh, taking advantage of that at the moment.
0: Yeah, exactly, that's a great, uh, challenge area. I think there's been some progress in that area from IBM right? with Dave Unger and Sam Adams were working on something like that. It was called the Renaissance Project.
1: Mm-hmm. It's surprising to me because you know we have real objects and we have the message paradigm messaging. Uh, so nothing would prevent a super distributed approach. Yeah, exactly. I am also busy with Hadoop technology. And there is also Spark, and there you have a lot of c- collections and collections that run on clusters, and they have all the the typical collection API uh, we are used to. So they reinvent uh, what we do because they use lambdas and uh, and so on. But okay, we have the block, we have the objects, we have the messages. It's just something in the VM uh, layer that, that prevents us. And I. I wonder what the previous implementations uh, in distributed computing were because, uh, okay, we all well, they deal with the machines, so they deal with the, the processes and, and so on. What, you know more than me about uh, historical uh, implementations, so maybe we can have a, a little work there. I, I know about Croquet, for example, which can do very interesting, sw- interesting things with multiple machines. And I know also about Gemstone S, but that's that's about it.
0: Yeah, when I was uh, getting first getting into remote messaging for Squeak, I did a little survey of just remote messaging options. So that's sort of different than parallelism. Um, it's just trying to get uh, small talks to communicate with each other at a distance. And at the time, um, Tea Time and Croquet hadn't uh, become public yet. Um, but certainly there was Gemstone S and another framework called RST, for remote Small Talk. And there was Squeaks Nebraska shared screen system as well. Probably the most influential one I had known about at that time was a collaboration between Park Place and Hewlett Packard called Distributed Small Talk, which was an implementation of the CORBA standard. But that one was way too heavyweight for what I was trying to do, just simple... Remote messaging.
1: Yeah, Corba, that's heavyweight. I did some of that in my C days.
0: Uh, Yeah, I wanted something that was really lightweight that could be used to get a large mesh of peers up and speaking with each other. And whether or not you could actually compose messages with parameters from uh, multiple different machines wasn't so important, although that turned out to be possible. But I w- yeah, I would say that yeah, that is the best way to gain useful experience with remote messaging is try to implement it yourself.
1: <laughs> sure. Well, uh, a basic remote messaging that's that's quite doable.
0: Yeah. You just need a, a socket or something, and a way to specify a receiver and a message, and there you go.
1: Yeah, because the paradigm is is pretty much a direct mapping. Uh, so we have this, this message. We can send it over and then it get applied. But then the the question is, okay, we can understand that that message and we can uh, perform the the operation and symbols and so on. But there are a number of challenges coming up. Like, how can I debug this? Or what happened to the object that this uh, would create and so on? How did, did you did you dealt with that? Because with the, the um, context project of yours. Uh, I got a beta, a spoon beta, and I run that. But I wonder how to debug a remote image because if you don't have this capability, that's that's very hard to, to do any disputed thing because you would have to log into everything and so on. So it's, it's complicated.
0: Yeah, exactly. I wanted to make sure there was remote debugging capability from the very beginning. Um, although the beta you were using, I think there were, there were some problems with it. Um, but Uh, Yeah, my original efforts toward making the object memory smaller were all predicated on having a remote browsing and remote debugging capability. And yeah, that's really how I evaluate not only languages in general, but distributed computation frameworks in particular, is how powerful and flexible and easy is it to debug a system.
1: Yeah, Because these days, well, if if we look at uh, the APIs we have on the web, it's the REST service. And we, we just call that with a URL and we, we get back some, well, depends on the format du jour, but uh, it could be XML, JSON, and YAML, uh, whatever. But that has nothing to do with uh, object-centricity there.
0: Yeah, well, so the remote messaging in context always makes sure to send every message in a, in a separate lightweight process so that you never deadlock waiting for some answer to come back in a message that you've sent. I I would say that's an important feature to make remote debugging possible.
1: Okay, so how how does this work? I mean, because I send a message, I perform a message send uh, to a remote target, and if I want to debug this, you mean that I don't have to wait for the answer to come back?
0: Every message send happens in a different uh, small talk process. On each side of the remote messaging connection, there is an object which is coordinating uh, traffic and managing which objects have been exposed to remote systems. And you know, basically, when you send a remote message, that coordinator object is keeping a, a registry of message exchanges that are in progress. And when a remote system sends an answer to a message back to a sending system, it does that under the ID of a particular message exchange. So when an answer comes back, a system can say, oh, okay, that's the answer to this exchange, which I had pending, and it will remove that exchange from its registry and then deliver the answer to the process that was waiting for it. Yeah, I see. Isn't that quickly turning into a
1: big ball of mud, complicated thing if, if you have issues and who answers when and so on, if we have multiple targets for the remote, uh, exchanges.
0: Uh, Well, with Squeak, it's not much of a problem because the whole system historically has been written with relatively little actual concurrency. Uh So, uh, yeah, extending the uh, synchronous message sending model into remote messaging doesn't really cause much of a problem because there isn't much of a need for reentrancy, at least in the basic system and the basic UI. So that's actually turned out to be a pretty simple way of going about things.
1: Yeah, I understand. The fact that we have uh, yeah, pretty collaborative uh, multitasking helps. would you say?
0: Mm-hmm. Most of the use cases to which the synchronization support is put, like semaphores and shared queues, are not terribly complicated. They just don't create many uh, opportunities for, for deadlocks. Okay.
1: But so then, uh, how would one deal with garbage collection? Because, okay, remote debugging is one thing, but if we want to offset a computation to another box and this is running and maybe in the message we refer to object that we have also locally how is this going on
0: well i would want to integrate what i've got now with uh, the ephemeron framework so that all the references that these remote messaging coordinator objects have with their exchange registries they're all doing that using weak references and those registers get cleaned up just through normal executor behavior.
1: Okay, because in distributed computing, I see well, debugging and debugging something remote, that's like I have a device to control a remote image. But then, um, what if I have one image and another one that are working together, and one reference I have on a machine A has to be passed to machine B, and then i need to get back something from machine b would you
0: copy it or do you have remote references by default things are passed by reference we don't pass copies around but objects can define their own policy for that and then applications can define their own policies for that that override what individual objects want
2: to do
1: because that's mostly the the callback thing you know i i have a an object in in the the object memory say uh, a and I do something in the object memory B, which will produce something, but object memory A will receive a reference to it and have to manipulate it remotely as well. So would all this be transparent?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's all transparent. In fact, with the uh, context remote messaging, it's actually quite difficult to know if an object is local or remote, unless you happen to know some special message protocol for querying the thing.
1: Because here we speak about like idempotent object memories that are working together, uh, and you can support more than one, like uh, more than a pair working together. Can we have uh, like ten dealing with each other? Is it possible?
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, like I was saying before, that's one result that I was able to attain is you can send a message with a receiver on one system, and all the parameters in that message being objects on different machines. So you could have you know five machines involved in one message send.
1: Okay. But then, of course, what if a machine dies?
0: Yeah, well, then you you need good integration with the exception handling system. There should be exceptions for this machine died in the middle of this message send you were trying to do that used an object that it has. Yeah. So then you need more policy for deciding, well, which of these five machines involved in this message send is responsible for dealing with these exceptions?
1: Yeah, and then you may just decide to die, right?
0: Yeah, that's, that could be the one option, yeah.
1: Yeah. And if we need such a a setup, it's because the problem uh, has to be partitioned properly.
0: Right. Yeah. So, you know, you can replicate the sort of synchronous debugging situation in a remote realm pretty straightforwardly, but when you actually want to model new kinds of problems that use real concurrency, yeah, then that's new territory and you have to come up with different techniques uh, which may require new tool capabilities that we just haven't had before.
1: Mm-hmm. And of course, each object memory has to agree on what version of the objects the think others have.
0: Right, right. So that's uh, another really important point. I think uh, remote messaging and remote debugging system is not ultimately useful unless it is well integrated with a module system as well. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to specify uh, which version mm-hmm of the class definitions involved, do you want to be using? And, you know, you may not need strict, exact agreement between all the systems on the class definition versions you're using, you may need class definitions, which are just compatible with each other, not necessarily the exact same ones. That's that's a whole critical area that you have to address.
1: Yeah, and there, of course, the the key, let's say mechanisms and uh tools we have in, in Smalltalk, well, we have uh, proxies.
0: Yeah, but if your module system is based on, a, a, on static files, you know, if it's based on Monticello for example, then I think that's a, an impediment to having a fully functional remote messaging system. If you can't dynamically reason about the versions of the classes that all your involved remote systems have, that's a problem.
1: And at the same time, I don't really care if they have a version which is a or B as long as they can answer my my message end
0: yeah exactly I, I would say they just have to be compatible they don't have to be exactly the same
1: but then of course if we if we have a couple images working together and we try to send the same computation to five nodes and these would not agree with each other on how to compute something we may we end up in trouble of course
0: yeah yeah and you know finding out if are compatible is a conversation that the classes themselves should be having with each other.
2: I'm James T. Savage, and this is the Small Talk Jobs Report. New York, France. Express IT has an opening for a Pack Base consultant. At a minimum, after knowing pac Base, you will have to be comfortable working in French and in French companies and know the French insurance market near Ingolstadt, Germany. Synthesis has an open Smalltalk Java position for someone who has experience with Smalltalk, Java, SQL, XML, REST interfaces, and experience in the auto sector and with large customers. Richland, Washington, USA. Our EVA front-end business group has positions available for an engineer for a principal engineer, and an advisory engineer. All three require advanced engineering degrees and various levels of experience with reactor physics and or fuel management. They are also looking for a wide range of other skills related to the position, including small talk. Fremont, California. LAM Research has multiple positions open for software engineers who have seven plus years of related software development experience and a strong background in electronics and electrical engineering. It is considered a plus if you have experience with small talk, automation engineering in the semiconductor industry, and real-time operating systems. VXWorks preferred. Singapore. JP Morgan has a position for an infrastructure systems admin associate who has a wide range of skills expected for such an admin position in a Unix, Linux environment, and they consider it a plus if you have experience with Smalltalk, gemstone administration, and prior working experience in a banking environment. The jobs listed in this report are just a few examples of these small talk positions that are currently open across the world. For more details, read our shared blog at smalltalkjobs.com. Good luck with your job hunting.
1: Sometime I upgrade uh, some code and, and I see that in some exception I have an obsolete this or that running around. It's live coding is okay, but if the class changes, sometimes instances are not always updated the way they should. Did you experience that?
0: Yeah, I have. That's something that can quite uh, often happen. And you would need a whole other set of exceptions for that. You know, if some new version of a class has become available in the middle of your computation, that, that could be interesting.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like upgrading some some seaside component while people are, are using the application. That's <laughs> not distributed, but that's a great, uh, version stuff.
0: Yeah, if you want to be a completely uh, live-coded system, then that's a pretty large ambition. It, brings on some very large challenges that you can choose to take on or, or choose not to. Yeah, you mean
1: what, stuffing another image with a fresh version of everything would be better and easier than live updating?
0: Uh, potentially, yeah. Or you could just choose to uh, ignore new versions of frameworks that come out while your computation is going on.
1: Uh-huh. I don't know of any support uh, in the current uh, Squeak and Faro systems for that. Is there?
0: I, well, I don't think there is. I'm working on a system called NIAD, which is a, a live module system, which I think can uh, answer all these challenges. If you want to interoperate with other languages and platforms that maybe are not even uh, live coding systems, then you have to choose what you're willing to give up. For example, if you want to play in the web services world, that's uh, usually a much more static situation.
1: Yeah, static, but they also have, with web services, their uh, version things and how to describe APIs and so on. Something we, we pretty much lack at the moment with the Swagger initiative and allowing easy access to REST services.
0: Yeah, yeah. we should have better support for the open API stuff that Swagger became.
1: Yeah, Yeah, because writing our own thing all the time, thats that's a bit of a pain. I'm aware there are new developments on the remote uh, debugging and inter-object uh, memory uh, exchanges uh, in Faro. Uh, did you heard of them at ESOG?
0: Yeah, at ESOG, there were demonstrations of Seamless and uh, another project just called Remote Debugger. Mm-hmm. And what, is, are they related?
1: I think like uh, remote debugging would, uh, would be, let's say, uh, based upon Seamless.
0: I believe it was. Uh, I didn't see that demonstration myself.
1: Yeah, I remember. There are blog posts and uh, it's all based on, on proxy stuff. So this is the, the block of Denis uh, Kidrashov and I know he worked now with the Faro team. So works on Faro 5. There was a basis new project, an abstract layer for networks. Yeah, it's another layer on top. Ah, you need to have a server and there's a an uh, remote peers. Yep. Yeah, I haven't uh, been using uh, this. But what I see, you can get remote references by having like a remote transcript uh, gets assigned uh, with a remote small talk at the symbol of the class, like remote small talk at transcript. And there you can just call things, like remote transcript open and remote transcript show uh, hello CR. But I don't know about uh, calling things back and so on. So you get a remote reference and transfer by value, transfer by reference. So I don't know if it's a completely transparent thing because indeed uh, the issue is to refer to remote objects.
0: Right. It may not be. I mean, to have completely transparent support, you have to change the VM a little bit.
1: Yeah. And maybe is it, is it really desirable to have fully transparent support?
0: Well, I found it to be yeah extremely useful not to have to second guess whether an object is local or remote. Just only care whether it can provide the protocol you want from it.
1: Uh-huh. Because here I see uh, one issue in the seamless thing is there is no garbage collection. So a seamless network keeps all objects that were transferred by reference. They will never be cleaned up while network is live. So if you do network destroy, OK, all caches and all connections are getting closed.
0: Yeah. Yeah, again, I think it, that would be something that you'd want to integrate with the ephemeron system. The the references that you're using to just manage the remote messaging um, are not, not strong. They won't keep objects alive by themselves. And you'd want some sort of notification system for when an object has been reclaimed in one system that notifies remote systems somehow about that. And maybe there's some sort of negotiation where you can say, okay, uh, an executor has said this object is now dead. And the remote system might say, well, wait a minute. No, I actually still want it. So make it alive again.
1: Mm -hmm. And I see here the the other project, the remote debugging. Uh, So you have a remote UI manager that you register on a port Uh, where the client image can connect. So you need a remote uh, endpoint. And then from the client, you can say uh, remote debugger connect to a given TCP address on a given port. And then you get a remote debugger reference. So you can evaluate uh, scripts or you can evaluate script asynchronously. And then you get back back, uh, an instance of a seamless proxy on the remote object. So yeah, you, you evaluate a block and the block gets transferred. So it's not directly calling, uh, an object. It's really having a block doing stuff, return things to you.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like a bit of a change in programming style.
1: Yeah. And blocks can reference local objects too. You can add things and evaluate remotely. Yeah. Non-local return is also supported. Uh huh. Interesting. Um but so I always find these things uh really complicated to deal with because you need to remember a lot of stuff.
0: Yeah, exactly. I, I was trying to avoid um you know, special configuration for remote objects.
1: But really the the key thing is to deal with scale and do we really need remote uh and distributed computing? That that's that's a problem which is, has some intersection with uh, the distributed computing and uh, scaling have some intersection, but it's not necessarily uh, always uh, a need of, of being scaling things super large. If you distribute computing to a given size, it would it would be okay. But now in this age of uh, say a big data and uh, Internet of Things and so on, there is a flood of, of information. We need maybe more machines to do things, or maybe we more need uh, super efficient machines. I don't know. Uh, what do you think the, the distributed pro- computing paradigm, how far would it go if we use uh, object memories and so on with transparent things? Uh, are we mature already to to do that with the current system? So is it just too much of a jump given the today um, situation?
0: No, I think we are. I think we are ready. In fact, for many years now, I've just been amazed at how much unused processing capacity is sitting on our desktops. And I think it's it's been crying out to get used uh, in exactly this way.
1: Because what we see is, you know, like web services. I'm just calling an API on, on Google uh, to do something with documents or sheets or, well, or on any web property, there is an API to do stuff. But it is web services. There are no objects or so the there was this this thing, object request brokers, and uh, yeah, the core bar, It's it's quite old. I remember doing that before 2000. So it, it's it's like the same things repackaged, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's there haven't really been any pervasive live-coded distributed computation systems yet.
1: Yeah, and and the co- we have functional programming coming and saying, yeah, but at the end of the day. What we end up with, with what most of the people use, are yeah, an API with a bunch of calls, giving you, you know, little numbers as references, not even a handle or something real, Yeah. and go with it.
0: Yeah, you're not really getting a bunch of machines collaborating together on one problem.
1: No. So I feel we are still like stuck in the 70s, where you had a transaction processor and you send it a message and it gives you back a structure. Right,
0: right.
1: Nothing new. It just has more color, it's a larger scale but concept wise we don't have a collaboration like we would have with uh yeah like we do with people
0: right but now that we do have a worldwide set of standards for establishing connections between machines through web services i think now is a great time with massive potential for actually doing live collaborative computation
1: yeah because also with people having mobile phones there's also a massive 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 uh, capacity for computing?
0: Yeah, that's a whole other humongous set of cycles going and used right now. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Why, why would they have to care on where is the system running? We can do things with containers, which give you portability of the computation can go here and there. But it's still not a large object memory where you don't care where things are. Because that's the interesting thing in small talk. Uh, I don't care where it's where it is. It's not on the file. It's not. Uh, is there? It's it's in the object memory, and the details of how it's implemented. I don't really need to know. And that's where I see an interesting thing with uh, small talk and uh, larger scale. But I haven't. Okay, we have gemstone s, but then we have a big stone uh, storing a lot. But a lot that is not so much of a lo- uh, so much compared to what others are, are storing. You know, like Facebook photos and so on, and it, it's it's massive. That's not the kind of things this would support.
0: Right, right. Yeah. I mean, well, Gemstone has been occupied so far, mostly with backend services, with acting as a repository of a large number of objects, which mostly are not doing anything. Mm-hmm. This year will be very interesting for distributed computation with Smalltalk.
1: I'd like to see where Seamless is going. Oh, but we need time to try all that and have a real case to apply it, right?
0: Yeah, I think that's that's always been a very important thing is we need real use cases to really exercise these ideas.
1: Yeah. Are there any any uh, objects that people have to be aware of to do distributed stuff?
0: There shouldn't be. People should only have to know how to set up connections between other systems. But once they're connected, I, I think everything should be completely transparent and they shouldn't have to know a whole lot of framework details to get going
1: any any reference that someone could look up for uh, how to do these uh, distributed computing uh, systems what what books did you read or what resources did you look into
0: well at the time it was uh, web searches uh, that i went off of beginning in mailing list traffic so i read a lot of threads in the pharaoh and well, no, this is back in 2002. So I read a lot of threads from the squeak mailing list and the self mailing list. Um, and just read a lot of uh, PhD theses that I could find online. Um, there aren't a lot of good books about distributed computation with live object systems. Um, I think someone should write one. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. That's good. It's always hard to write documentation.
0: Yeah, it's always hard to stop development and... Do anything else yeah well that's a good place to leave it
1: yeah thank you very much for for the chat hope to to talk about topics and other topics in the future
0: and we're always interested in feedback if you have a topic you'd like us to discuss or a guest you'd like us to interview please let us know thanks for listening and we'll see you next week bye